Hello, everyone. This is Michael Hyatt from michaelhyatt.com. You're listening to the man who has trained more people to podcast than anyone else on the planet. My friend Cliff Ravenscraft, he is the podcast answer man. Are you ready to take your message, your business, and your life to the next level? Want to learn from someone with more than a decade of experience, training tens of thousands of people from all around the world? Hi, Cliff. This is Pauline from Auckland, New Zealand. John from Calgary, Alberta. Amy Porterfield. Michael Hyatt. Dan here from Dunedin, New Zealand. Ray Edwards. Mark Mason. Mike Stelzner. Pat from Smart Passive Income. It's Darren from Melbourne, Australia. Whether you're looking to launch a podcast or build an online business that allows you to do the work you love, you've come to the right place. Podcast Answer Man presents The Cliff Ravenscraft Show. Now, here's your host, Cliff Ravenscraft. That's right, my friends, and I am so excited today to bring to you my interview with Gay Hendricks, the author of the book, The Big Leap. Now, I've been sharing with you guys over the past four weeks prior to this um, my thoughts as it relates to what, I, what I've been processing in my mind related to this idea of The Big Leap. And I had an opportunity to talk with Gay Hendricks about the concepts in his book for 45 minutes. I'm going to share that with you first. And then after my conversation with Gay, I will come back and share with you some additional thoughts. And without any further ado, here is the conversation I had with Gay Hendricks. Gay, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you here. Glad to be with you, Cliff. I've been talking about your book as I've gone deep into the materials over the past month. So four prior episodes more than five hours of this podcast has been devoted to The Big Leap and how it's inspired me. I've had some friends of mine, mentors, business advisors on to discuss this book with me. Each time I give an overview of what the book is, like a as short as possible, a minute, two minute, and I would love to have your explanation. Could you describe for those who have not yet read the book, who haven't heard the previous five hours worth of content about The Big Leap, Can you give us an explanation briefly of what the big leap is, the zone of genius, and the upper limit problem? Yes. The big leap is really about two important ideas, two big ideas that have changed my life and a lot of the people that I've coached. Uh, Big idea number one is that most of us have an upper limit problem in the sense that we keep stopping ourselves short of the goals that we want to consciously achieve. Um, So what happens is we move toward accomplishing a goal, whether it's in business or in love or in relationship or whatever area of life. And because of our upper limit mechanisms, it acts as kind of like a governor acts on an accelerator that when we get to a certain point, our unconscious limitations kick in and cause us to sabotage ourselves and come back down to that comfortable, familiar level that we've been operating at, rather than the breakthrough level that we want to be operating at. So the big leap looks at that problem and shows you how to solve that problem. So the first and foremost, it's about how to solve the upper limit problem, how to move through those limiting beliefs 
to establish yourself in what I call your zone of genius. So the second big idea that's in uh, The Big Leap is the zone of genius. And what I discovered first in myself, but also in people that I worked with, is that people are operating every day, all day long, in one of four zones. One is the zone of incompetence, where we're doing things we're not any good at and kind of beating our heads against the wall. The second is the zone of competence, where we're pretty good at something, but it's something that somebody else could do just as well. The third zone Sounds good, but it has a big limitation built into it. I call it the zone of excellence. And in the zone of excellence, you're doing things that you're good at, you get good feedback for, you make money at it, you could even become chairman of the board doing your zone of excellence. But I know from having worked with a number of CEOs and chairmen of the board and very highly accomplished people, that even highly accomplished people get stuck in the zone of excellence and often don't break through to their zone of genius. Ultimately, for any person who is um, really bent on achieving their full potential, we need to open up a dialogue with our zone of genius, which is when we're operating in our zone of genius, you're doing what you're, you most love to do. You're doing what your heart's desire wants you to do. And speaking again from personal experience, I spent, you know, the first half of my life not in my zone of genius. And then once I began to discover all of this, managed to transport myself into my zone of genius. And it's like living in a completely different world, because in the zone of genius, you're doing things that you love to do, and you're doing things that... Even a small amount of it yields big results. So that's another sign you're operating in your zone of genius is when you might have an idea that takes you 10 seconds to hatch, but then it has multi-million dollar possibilities. And so I can give you some examples of that uh, in our conversation if you'd like. Uh, but uh, just to summarize, so there's really two big uh, problems that I confront in the big leap. One is the zone of genius and one is the upper limit problem. And I show you how to dissolve your upper limit problem and live in your zone of genius. That's really what the whole book is all about. That message and those two things, along with everything else written in the book to support all of that, has had a profound impact on me personally, helping me uncover really the last 44 years of my journey through life, but more specifically, the past 10 years of my own uh, professional life, uh, leaving my career of insurance of 12 years, and then over the past 10 years, pursuing something that I felt more called to do, which is to build a business around my desire to create content that en entertains, educates, encourages, and inspires other people. I've been very successful in that pursuit, except for I got stuck in the zone of genius or zone of excellence by <laughs> finding that the lowest hanging fruit at the time, the only way that I could think of generating a significant amount of income was teaching people how to hook up mixers and cables and setting up podcast RSS feeds. And so I've become known around the world as the podcast answer man. And <laughs> and I'm I'm now, and a matter of fact, I, I I'm taking the big leap and my goal, my desire. Um, is I, I don't want to be Tony Robbins, but I've the only way that I can explain it to people who know what I would talk about it, or what I want to do and what my vision is, I want to be Tony Robbins for the next generation, but my own style, my own message of helping people doing exactly what this 
book is about and why this book was recommended to me, which is helping people break free from their limiting beliefs, expanding their mindset of what is possible, and of course, to help them become all that they were created to be. In the book, you wrote that millions of people are stuck on the verge of reaching their goals and can't seem to scale the wall and are struggling under a glass ceiling that is completely within their control waiting to be removed. And you also wrote, many of us believe that we are flawed, that we are not destined for greatness, or we simply are not good enough to deserve the dreams we want to achieve. So I have a question. I have a two-part question. Number one, do you believe that everyone has the opportunity to take their own big leap into a zone of genius where they can spend a majority of their life in their zone of genius? And also, can they financially be successful and abundant in that pursuit? Do you believe that's available for everyone? Yes. And I base that not just on my own fantasies, but on having worked with 20,000 people over the years um, and 800 executives in big companies. I can tell you that even if you're operating at the highest level, like being the CEO of a Fortune 50 company, I've worked with folks like that, and even they are able to make breakthroughs where they spend more of their time in their zone of genius, even though they were originally operating at a very high level. Um, So, see, the big problem, why people don't break through their uh, limitations on their own often is that many of the limitations are hidden from plain sight their unconscious limitations that were installed and kind of held on to before you could really think for yourself. So I don't want anybody ever to feel bad about not operating in their zone of genius because, you know, it's just like learning to drive a car. You don't have to feel bad before you learn to drive the car, you know, you, uh, that you don't know how to drive a car. But once you start getting behind the wheel and begin to move You want to become better all of the time. If you're like most of us, you want to improve consciously. And so what you have to do is begin to look under the surface, particularly at the issue of fear, because I found that, like I said, you know, I've worked with billionaires and, um, you know, lots of people's names you'd recognize. And I've worked with people when I first started that were juvenile delinquents and, um, I worked in a prison for a while early in my career. So no matter what level of society or achievement you're at, you've always got some fears under the surface that are running more of your life than you would like to think. Um, One of the big fears is often laid down in early childhood in interactions with brothers and sisters more than with parents, although parents are involved. But a lot of times, a lot of our early programming is in relationship to siblings. And I know not everybody has siblings, but um, if you do, think carefully for a moment. One of the big fears I've found in working with even gifted people is what I call a fear of outshining other people. So they hold themselves back so that other people don't feel bad about their success. And so... A lot of those, as I've looked into that with people, a lot of them found that they made those early decisions based on relationships with brothers and sisters where they didn't, they were told by their parents not to outshine their siblings. Now, in some cultures, 
Like um, if you go down to Australia, one of the first things you, you encounter is what they call the tall poppy syndrome, where they have a, a saying down there, don't be the tall poppy. Don't stick out from the crowd because if the farmer sees a tall poppy sticking out, they'll cut it off. And so the whole ethic there is to kind of stay down in the pack. Now, Australia was founded a lot by prisoners who came there in chains. And so a, a lot of the early you know, ways of thinking in Australia were ways that convicts thought. And in a prison setting, there's a big ethic about kind of keeping your head down in the pack, you know, don't stand out too much because you'll, you'll get yourself in trouble. If you go to Sweden, for example, they have a word in their culture, lagum, it's called lagum. And what it means is, don't be too far ahead, don't be too far back, stay right in the middle and you'll be okay. So those kinds of messages get into our unconscious and cause us to feel bad if we kind of stick our head out above the crowd and start functioning at a higher level. So one of the first things that I've asked my clients to confront is that fear of outshining and to correct the thinking error, which is many of us think that if we shine, somebody else has to feel bad or it's going to diminish somebody else's light. But let's look at it the way it really works. If you shine, you can inspire other people to shine. And so um, I invite people to really take a look at that fear of outshining and begin to dismantle that so that that doesn't fuel their upper limit problem. You mentioned that you could give examples of, of various different people. In the book, you talk about a gentleman who had a business deal. He was offered either a million or a couple million dollars for the sale of his company. And he has, he came up with some crazy argument about vacation time or something like that. And he blew it because he had an upper limit problem. Then you go into Kenny Loggins and you go into some other celebrities. And, and those are all great. What I would love to hear from you, Gay, is I would love to hear a story of just an average, everyday, ordinary person who is an employee who literally spends 90% of their time in their zone of incompetence, 10% of their time working in their job as an employee in their zone of competence, and they've never even experienced a zone of excellence, let alone dream about what their zone of genius is. I would love to hear one example of somebody that the everyday average person can say, I resonate with that person's story. Give me somebody who broke through from the life of an employee uh, where they're, they're never even in their zone of excellence, who've broken through to this big leap of their zone of genius. Yes, let me just sort through a few files in my head so I can come up with, with a good one. Um, so, um, well, going back to a long time ago, one of the first people that I worked with was a fellow who um, was really talented, but he suffered from a lot of physical maladies, particularly uh, incapacitating back pain. And so what would happen would be he would, at his job, he would begin to, you know, he, would, he, he was a, kind of a, I think he would, his official title would be an engineer's assistant um, at a high-tech firm. So he was kind of a mid to low-level employee, but when he would begin to succeed at his job, oftentimes his back pain would come up, 
and cause him to miss days of work or he'd have to call in and say, I'm flat on my back. And so he became kind of an unreliable employee based on his physical maladies. Well, first of all, he had never looked at his back pain as an upper limit problem. And so I invited him, like I do with a lot of people who suffer from various physical maladies, you know, they've got their own explanation for it and they've got their own medical background, but I invite them to do something different. Just look at it as an upper limit problem and see if there's any relationship between the physical problem and when you have breakthroughs into more success. And he's, he worked on that, he realized that his back pain would flare up when he started to do better. And so just beginning to see his back pain as an upper limit problem was incredibly helpful because he realized it had some kind of logic to it. It wasn't just something that came out of the woods and clobbered him every few weeks. So he began to see that he had more control of it. So that led him into looking with me at what is it in your old learning way back a long time ago that you've forgotten about. It's basically the unconscious is all the learnings we've had that we've forgotten we learned. And uh, there's nothing more mysterious than that. And so as he looked at that, he realized that in childhood, he'd grown up in a family where people would actually get punished for outshining other people. There were a whole bunch of kids, and if one of them started to do better, <laughs> they would oftentimes, uh, the others would, uh, it was like crabs in the bucket. You know, if one crab starts to crawl out of the bucket, the other crabs will pull it back in. And um, so that a lot of times when people would start to shine, fights would break out among the kids or the parents or something like that. So there was never any breakthrough to any kind of higher level of functioning. So um, when he got hold of this back pain thing, he was lifting a bucket of um, concrete or something very heavy when he, he thought that was when he injured his back. Later on, when we began to look at it as an upper limit problem, he realized that he was actually in charge of his own back pain, that his unconscious would dial it up in order to keep him down in his lower level of incompetence or competence. So there would be a good example because as he solved that problem, I'm not saying it took overnight, I mean it took, I would say three to four months of systematic focus on it, but his back pain began to clear up. So that was one thing. But the second thing was because he was able to function at a higher level for longer and longer periods of time, he began to move more toward what he really wanted to be rather than an assistant. And so what he did was ended up going back to school and ended up getting a degree in engineering management, um, going through the whole bunch of process. I mean, it took him years to get to where he wanted to be. So I don't want to ever suggest that these things are overnight transformations, you know, like an overnight transformation is you you dip a, a white T-shirt in and hold it up, and the next day it's blue. Well, that's nice, but it doesn't often work like that in real life. What happens in real life is you need to make a breakthrough, which could only take you 10 seconds, but then you need to establish it out there in your regular working and living life. And so um, I, I always want to make sure people understand that this is not some kind of magical approach, that it takes some systematic dedication and focus. And so um, 
because he had that focus, he was able to later on manifest his dream job in the engineering sector. So he kind of went from assistant to manager over a six-year period. But the first breakthrough was that thing that he did was realizing, oh, I hurt myself when I start having a better time in life. Right. And the same kind of thing, Cliff, happens with relationships. As you probably know, my wife and I write relationship books. Our, our most popular one being Conscious Loving, which we wrote almost 30 years ago now. And uh, we're on Oprah with it a bunch of times and that kind of thing. Um, but we've worked a lot, I'd say, with um, maybe 4,500 couples now, as well as you know thousands of single people. And the exact same thing happens in the relationship domain that people begin to feel more intimacy and then they'll start an argument or they'll have some problem with the kids or somebody will get sick. But I ask couples when we work with them to start looking at arguments as upper limit problems because many couples just think their arguments come out of nowhere. And yet we've worked with couples in here who've been having basically the same argument for decades at a time. And so they dial up the same argument over and over again, month after month after month. After a while, you have to start realizing this didn't come out of nowhere. This came out of some program in me that says, when I get to a certain level of intimacy, I start doing things that sabotage that level of intimacy. So again, you have to start looking at the fears that are underneath the upper limit problem, because it's almost always looking at those fears and beginning to dissolve those fears that help people move through the upper limit and stabilize themselves in their zone of genius. Once I read that section of the book, uh, it, it really helped me uncover some critical thoughts that I would have, uh, you know, just thinking about some of the things that I would nitpick in my own mind about, you know, my own relationship with my wife. And we've been married uh, very happily for more than 20 years now. So I think we, actually in August, it was 21 years. So we've been very happily married. But the funny thing is, is that every time I found myself getting very excited about the way things are going, a new level of success, a new something or other, there were times when I felt like, you know, I, I would I would get very critical in my own mind about how my wife, why isn't she supportive as or as excited about this as I am? And, you know, and, and sometimes she would say something just because she's a fun, loving, very carefree person. And 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 I'm a you know, I'm sure you've heard of the five love languages. I'm a words of encouragement person. And that's not at her top of her list. And so <laughs> so there she she would say things jokingly to me that actually, you know, really would eat at me. And so I, I realized it. But I loved in your book, and I don't want to go too far into this discussion. I want people to go into the book to get to, to this. But I really loved what you said when it's you're, pl- you're racing towards the role of the victim. And I'm like, wow, that was eye-opening. And, and I just want to say thank you for that because... It, Ever since I read your book for the very first time, I can't think of a critical negative thought about anything my wife has done or said since. Well, I'm really happy to hear that uh, because, yeah, that's so important. You, uh, the way we say it is that all couples' arguments are a race to occupy the victim position. Yes. And one person will get into the victim position first and say, 
you're doing it to me, you know, I'm, and then the other person doesn't stand for that. And so they jump into the victim position and say, no, I'm the real victim here. And so pretty soon you have two people fighting to occupy the most unhappy position in any situation. Yeah. I like that. And and, th- and the, that's explained very thoroughly in the book. And so I, I, I want people, if you haven't read the book, go read that section of the book real quickly. I, I want to spend just a little bit of time here. Einstein time. It seemed yes. like it seemed a little bit out of place, but uh, you know, here, here's what I've come down to understanding. This is what I've written down. Number one, time flows when you're having fun, which is different than time flies. Ta- yeah. Time flows when you're having fun. And I have two other bullet points. You always have plenty of time to do the things that you love to do. And you never have enough time to do the things that you really don't want to do. Is there anything more to Einstein time than that? Um, well, I think you've, you've got the solid fundamentals of it. Um, the idea, though, that people have the hardest time accepting is that they're in charge of where time comes from. You're not the victim of time. And so many people think they're the victim of time. They go around talking like, oh, I didn't have time to do that. Or, oh, I would have loved to do that, but I just didn't have the time. Or, oh, I'm going to get around to that when I have more time. But the fact is that everybody is in charge of the amount of time they want to spend on things. And so the moment you claim ownership of time, you make a huge breakthrough the moment you claim victimhood of time, you start talking yourself out of doing what you really love to do and being where you really want to be. And so, um, yeah, the, the big thing in Einstein time is to realize that you can make up as much time as you want to do whatever you want to do. And since time flows when you're occupying your zone of genius, you'll find that you have the most time when you're operating in your zone of genius. Because the more you devote time to your zone of genius, you'll spend more time in the timeless zone. And so uh, paradoxically, the more time you spend in the timeless, the more time you have. And so it's a question of focus. So if you get clear that you want to focus on your creating your life in your zone of genius, you'll find that time starts to work for you. But if you go around claiming to be the victim of time, nothing works right. Because the more you claim the victimhood of time, the less time you actually have to make your dreams come true. I think where some people will get wrapped up in this is that they think, okay, well, there's only 24 hours in a, in a day. Uh, let's just say they 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 want to sleep a, a solid good eight hours to to remain healthy most of the time. Maybe seasons where they hustle a little bit more, but the the idea is that okay, I I definitely want to work out. I want to be physically active. I would love to have some time to read and 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 learn and grow and and experience new things. I would love to be able to go to you know my kids. Uh, thing at school, but I have this day job that requires me to be here from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. And then I'm expected home by 5.30 and, you know, the there, there are family activities and commitments there. And I would really love 
there's this one thing I would really love to do. It's my zone of genius, but it's seen as a hobby and it has to be put off. And the, and and they feel like the only time that they have to do that is is like after the kids go to bed. It's from ten o'clock, and it's like before they know it, they're gonna they're gonna work on it, and it's two or three o'clock in the morning, and they're going at it month after month, and over time they get burned out. So yeah, that that's where I think a lot. How how does Einstein Einstein time fill fit into those people with that mindset? Yes, well, I've um, introduced Einstein time to a lot of really busy people over the years, and uh, you're absolutely right. A lot of the first thing people say oftentimes is, "I'd love to spend time in my zone of genius, but I just don't have the time." And um, because of all the reasons you've cited, here's what I do, and this is a very practical suggestion: start with ten minutes a day. Most people can manage ten minutes a day. As a matter of fact. I've been sitting in offices with executives of companies when I've suggested this to them. And they'll say, oh, God, I still have 10 minutes. And I'll say, yeah, you do. Let's do it right now. And so together, we'll sit for 10 minutes, maybe doing only things like me saying every minute, what is your genius? Or what do you most love to do? Or just basic questions, just to kind of sit with genius for 10 minutes because what I know is that 10 minutes is going to become addictive and pretty soon they're going to want to do 12 minutes and then 14 minutes of, of being in their zone of genius. So I say start small. Um, I have a friend, uh, Scott, who was um, overweight and hadn't had, had a gym membership but hadn't ever used it. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, the um, so what he did was he decided to get in shape and so he went to the gym and decided to do one chin-up a day for seven days. And then the second week, do two chin-ups a day for seven days. So by the end of the year, he was doing 52 chin-ups every day. He'd lost 30 pounds. And he'd done it all by staying in his zone of comfort. So I always say, you know, you don't have to sell your house and move to a cave in Tibet um, to occupy your zone of genius. You don't have to run off to Tahiti and live on the beach. You don't have to do anything different except introduce a homeopathic dose of genius into your life. Just block out 10 minutes. And if you're not doing anything else, just wonder about your genius. But if you know kind of what some of your genius is, like I worked with a, a dentist one time, very successful dentist, and um, um, but one of those guys that you know came to me at age forty and said, "Look, you know, I'm making four hundred thousand dollars a year, but I feel like I'm dying doing it, and I'm so stressed out." And it was a classic case. He was in his zone of excellence, but had never spent a minute in his zone of genius. So we determined that the last thing he could remember that he really loved doing, which he loved doing in high school. He had a favorite English teacher, and this English teacher got him into writing poetry. And then he got into dentistry and completely left the whole writing game behind. But I got him to sit down with me and just write a poem for 10 minutes. You wouldn't believe the look on that guy's face when we finished. I mean, he, he went from this kind of stressed out look to, you know, he had some aliveness on his face. And I was so uh, impressed by that. That was that was many years ago before I started, had really formulated these ideas well. 
that I'll never forget because he still became, he didn't quit and become a poet and run away to Tibet or anything like that and write poetry, but he started writing poetry more and he started writing poetry about being a dentist and being, um, then he start, He took a counseling program and became, he started writing poems about, um, you know, working with people on the emotional level. And um, I used to teach in the counseling psychology program at the University of Colorado. I did that for 21 years uh, from 1974 to 1995. I was a university professor there. And that's the context in which I met this gentleman and worked with him because then he came through our counseling program and got his degree in counseling. And uh, so he had that to add to his dental work. But the point I'm making is you don't have to alter your lifestyle. You don't have to get less sleep or anything like that. Just introduce the small amount and watch it grow from there. But making that first 10 minute big leap is often the biggest leap that people end up having to make, just sitting down for 10 minutes and believing in themselves enough to focus on their zone of genius. I wonder, Gay, if I'm I'm a, maybe a, a dangerous example of somebody making a big leap because you know, I'm I'm somebody who I, I my a majority of my income over the last eight years has been at one four week training course that I teach, and it's generated a minimum of two hundred and forty thousand dollars a year consistently every year. I could do it every year for the next ten years, and it would it would guaranteed to provide that stable income from me. And every time I do it, a little piece of my soul dies inside because I spent I I give I've I've given way too much access to twenty people of my time. I give them unlimited access to me for four weeks out of, at a time, six months out of the year. And I have to market that thing in between. And what I realized is that it's keeping me from doing the thing that I most love to do, which is why I left my career in insurance. Um, and, and you know, there are bit, there have been bits and pieces where I could operate within my zone of genius within a couple of working with a couple of the students who are open to some of the mentoring and the things that I'd love to do. But for the most part, you know, I, I'm blocked from doing the creating the content, uh, having great, amazing conversations, being free with to be with my family and all this other stuff because I've locked into that zone of excellence thing. And I personally have decided it's gone instantly. And as soon as I did, which was it was anxiety at the time when I made that decision. It's like, what am I going to do? But once I made that decision. I wrote, I, I went to my whiteboard and I had what you call optimal anxiety. <laughs> and I said, okay, how am I going to replace this? And I wrote down 10 different things that I could do. Any one of the 10, I could do all 10 of them, I won't, but any one of the 10 will replace the $240,000 a year in income in a fraction of the time. Mo- the most time consuming would be two hours a week <laughs> yeah. instead, of, instead of 40 hours a week, six months out of the year. So, and and one of them, by the way, I will make $250,000 in one weekend next year. And I would have never done that had I not said no to this other thing. So I am one of those people who, I, I'm moving to bed, to Tibet, if you will, <laughs> figuratively, of course. So, yeah, well, uh, so, but the, so here's my question is, if, are, do you suggest, I know you say, you start out 10 minutes, you know, homeogenically or whatever you said, you, you give them that little dose here. Is the goal for, I mean, you said this dentist does not, he, he didn't leave dentistry and become a poet full time. So, so he's not, he's not operating in his zone of genius 
a majority of the time, but he's doing it more than he ever before, and he's probably achieving a lot more fulfillment in life. Do you think it should be everyone's goal to spend a majority of their time in the zone of genius? Ideally, yes. I think there's a certain kind of person that won't ever be satisfied until they're spending the majority of their time in their zone of genius. And you know who you are. You know, I'm one of those, you're one of those, and lots of your listeners are probably those kind of people too that are never really going to be satisfied until they kind of turn themselves inside out in the service of their genius. They, you know, like um, my other book, Five Wishes, talks about how we need to subject all of our life decisions to what I call the deathbed test, which is picture yourself on your deathbed 50 years from now, looking back over your life and saying, was it a success? Yes, my life was a success. If so, what made it a success? And find out what those five things are that would make your life a success and get busy doing that. And so like you on your deathbed, me on my deathbed, most of your listeners, if you really think about it at the end of your life, having a completely successful life, it will be because you spent a majority of your time going for those things that were sacred to you. Like the five things that are sacred to me that I determined in my 30s, number one, I want the love of a woman that I'm close to with whom I can grow and change over time. So that became my number one priority. At the time, I didn't have my relationship with my wife, Kathleen, also known as Katie. But now I do, and we've been together now for 38 magical years, you know, so that was my number one thing. My number two was to live in a state of completion with, you know, so there's nothing unsaid that I haven't said to anybody important in my world uh, or anything I haven't listened to that somebody else has with me. So that became number two. Number three was I wanted to learn how to write from my heart rather than just from my head. I wanted to be able to write books like The Big Leap rather than scientific articles like I was writing. Uh, I was originally trained as a research psychologist, and so a lot of my early writings are in very small journals that are only read by 250 graduate students a year. And, uh, you know, I decided I wanted to go to a much bigger audience. And so that became number three. My number four goal for my life was to you could call it metaphysics or spirituality, but it was to learn as much as I could about the creator force in life, what some people call spirit or soul or God, whatever that is, whatever name you call it, it's that animating principle of the universe. And I wanted to learn as much as I could about that. Um, so that's taken me on bicycle rides across Tibet, visiting monasteries, and that's taken me to St. Peter's Basilica and it's all over, you know, looking for the essence of religion and that kind of thing. My fifth desire for my life was what I call savoring. I wanted to be able to be present in my life so I could savor, whether it's this conversation we're having or this morning when I was out uh, in my garden um, or this afternoon, I'm playing in a golf match this afternoon. So whatever I'm doing, and in about uh, 15 minutes, I'll be having lunch with my wife. And so whatever I'm doing, I want to be savoring that. I don't want to be doing one thing while my mind is busy doing something else. So that became my fifth goal for my life. Everybody's got different goals. But um, I've found that if we get busy moving toward our own chosen goals, 
that's where life satisfaction comes from. I think much of our unhappiness as human beings comes from the lack of worthwhile goals that we've chosen with our heart as well as with our head. I have some listener questions that have come in from, I posted on Facebook today, you know, as thousands of people have been following my journey into my big leap. Kathleen Thompson wrote this. She says, so many of us do what we have to do in order to support ourselves and our families to do what's responsible. We develop as best as we can in our environment and end up living in our zone of excellence for a long time. How do we figure out what our zone of genius is in that situation? Now, before you answer that, I explained that you talk about how to find your zone of genius in the book. It was the four clarifying questions. What do I most love to do? What work do I what work do I do that doesn't seem like work? And uh, in my work, what produces the highest ratio of abundance? And what is my unique ability, such as fill in the blank, I'm at my best when I blank. Uh, when I'm at my best, the exact thing. So I, I went through all of that with her, and she says, okay, but here's the thing, and, and this is where I'm going to ask you. Speaking for myself and others whom I know and work with, sometimes the, play, the place where we work is toxic, and it taints our perspective as what we do as well. They are so intertwined. When I've asked people questions like this, they can't even think of their life like that. Not because they're not good at stuff, but because they don't like it. Hardly anything about what they're doing. I've had many conversations with people like this. They're good at what they do. They get paid well, but they hate it and feel trapped. And it's been going on for so long that they have a hard time answering those fill-in-the-blank questions or any of those other questions. So the question she has is, what do you do when you can't even fill in those blanks? Well, first of all, if you're in a really toxic environment, you know, a big priority needs to be put on getting out of that environment. If you find that it's not a place that's conducive to your zone of excellence or your zone of genius, well, and if that's absolutely impossible to get out of that toxic environment, then I think you need to start um, a radical program of claiming your own genius in that environment by starting with my 10 minutes a day prescription. Find 10 minutes that you can duck out of that toxicity and spend time owning your genius, figuring out what you really want to do, um, figuring out more of what you love. So start out with that even in the toxic environment um, if you can't get out of it. Uh, I found myself in a pretty toxic, when I was first thinking about these ideas, um, I had an, I was in an environment that had some toxicity to it. And so ultimately I left that environment, but, but it took me a few years before I could, um, just before I, I should say, before I thought I could, I probably could have at the time, but I hadn't re- I wasn't deep enough in my own zone of genius so that I had the confidence to leave it yet. So I had to start kind of doing it on the weekends, doing my genius on the weekends and gradually build up that way. But I want to also stress something else, which is like just speaking personally, one of my own personal examples, back in the 90s, I had the great good fortune of um, investing in a startup that later on went public and um, you know it was a, a, a big win for me at the time um, where I saw the power of things like um, 
the stock market and seeing how you could take a little piece of genius and turn it into a large amount of money because this particular business we invested in, there was nothing to it except some engineer, a, a software engineer, had figured out a tiny algorithm that made email go faster. You know, so it was not anything you could point to. You couldn't say, there's the store I invested in. I invested in some little bit of uh, data that made email go faster. Well, we ended up getting, I think, almost a million dollars back for a small investment of something like $30,000. So it was a huge win. And so it started me thinking, I hadn't thought much about how to create a business that could be taken public or sold or anything like that. But once I turned my mind to it, I had an idea that took me literally 10 seconds to hatch one day that I later was able to sell for close to $10 million. Um, and that proved to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that it doesn't take time to come up with things that make money. So I want you all and I want your listeners to really treat as sacred time the amount of time you spend in your zone of genius, even if it's only 10 minutes a day, even if it's only 10 seconds a day, because I had this idea, um, I wanted to produce inspirational movies with my business partner, Stephen Simon, who's a movie producer. And um, so we kept beating our brains going down to Hollywood saying, uh, hey, we've got the rights to conversations with God. Um, how about giving us $20 million to make the movie? We get thrown out. The reason they would say people don't want to go see movies like that. You know, people want to see action and that kind of thing. So after about a year of that, one morning I had this 10 second idea. Oh, I'll create a business that goes around Hollywood. We'll go to film festivals and get great films that Hollywood doesn't want to distribute. And then we'll distribute them to people on DVDs later on download. Um, but when we started the business back in 2003, it was, um, there was no downloading yet. It was all DVDs. So we created the Spiritual Cinema Circle, which I later sold, and we sold it for a very handsome profit. Ten seconds, the idea popped into my mind. Then it took a, probably four or five months to put it into practice, and then it took a year to build it up. But you see the power of just giving yourself permission to occupy your zone of genius. So again, don't worry about running away to Tibet or to a cave or anything or to Tahiti. Um, get yourself in a quiet space for 10 minutes today and just spend that time kind of massaging your genius. And uh, on that happy note, I'm going to bid you adieu because I've got to grab a few calories before I go off to uh, participate in my golf tournament this afternoon. Well, Gay, thank you so much for pursuing your zone of genius and uh, not writing science technical material and, and writing The Big Leap, which has helped me tremendously and I know has helped a lot of other people. And I appreciate you taking the time today. All right. Blessings to you, Cliff. Bye. Well, there you go, my friends. That was my conversation with Gay Hendricks, author of The Big Leap. And I absolutely am thrilled to have had the opportunity 
to have that conversation. There are so many questions that I had from my community that I was unable to fit in to our conversation. I had 45 minutes total with Gay, and I wanted to definitely respect his time and his commitment of 45 minutes. And so I apologize that I didn't get Gay to address all of the questions that you guys submitted. But I wanted to come back and share some of my thoughts on some of the questions that came in. So John Stoppel says, I'd be curious to know if Gay is coming from a faith perspective, and I'm wondering if so, how it's impacted him, his writing, his overall perspective on life. Now, John, obviously, he did mention that one of his major pursuits in life, one of his five wishes, if you will, for his life, is is definitely a spiritual aspect. Now, if you're asking... You know, is he coming from a Christian perspective? I did not have the opportunity, unfortunately, to squeeze that question in. I was hoping to do so. Not necessarily, are you a Christian? But this, the exact question as you asked, I was going to ask him if he came from a faith perspective. Um, based upon what I heard is is that I think that he is overall seeking the answers to what faith is and the various different religions and what they have to offer. And and so I, I think it's still vague and ambiguous as to whether or not what perspective he might have landed on, if any. I'm not even going to suggest one or the other. I do know, however, that there are many of my friends who have who have reached out to me personally who have expressed concern with recommending this book because it doesn't seem like it's coming from a Christian perspective. And, you know, there's there's the talk of attributing certain things to the universe and, you know, and, and stuff like that. And, and I've been dealing with this scenario. I, I, I used to have similar hangups personally for materials like Think and Grow Rich and, and a bunch of other self-help materials from, from the past. And I've come to the place where it's, I'm not necessarily looking for an author who is sharing life principles that are true to actually share my faith background and, and stuff like that. For example, there are a number of books that have influenced me that beat like a dead horse, you know, this idea that we are evolved from amoebas and, and all of this other stuff. And I've come from a faith background that believes in the creation story and a little bit more of a literal interpretation. What I came down to saying to myself is this. I I believe that anything that is true is true because God made it true. And that means all of these universal principles and, and stuff like that. I don't feel like Gay Hendricks developed the, the principles of the zone of... Uh, of incompetence, the zone of competence, the zone of excellence, and the zone of genius. I think he developed the language that he chose to use to apply to those universal principles that he's observed in life, and also this this pursuit as a mentor and a coach and and a, a psychologist or whatever in helping people. Uh, achieve greater success in life and and uncover the issues that they've been facing that are keeping them from accepting more success, more love, more abundance in their life. 
he he's developed this language and he's put it together in a framework that is easy to understand and it and here's what i do when i read a book like this and i hear you know it's like talk of you know the universe and there's even references in here to where millions of years ago before we evolved there was you know this was attributed to this and it served us well then but it doesn't serve us now you know that that would fly right in the face of a creationist uh, Christian. Now, um, and and so I understand that. And but the thing is, though, is the question is okay. We understand that if if you happen to not be someone who believes in you know a, a young Earth and all that stuff, you don't believe in evolution. The question is is because this person who wrote the book does not share a literal interpretation of the Book of Genesis. Does that mean that and and because he it, it came out. In the writing of the book, if you disagree with him on his stance of, you know, how old the earth is and whether or not we've evolved from amoebas and and apes and, and our, you know, and, and, you know, prehistoric ancestry and all that other stuff, if you disagree with him on that fundamental issue for you, does that make the framework of the big leap and the zone of genius and the and all does that automatically make all of that stuff untrue and i've come to the conclusion that no i what i can what i do is when i read this book i'm not looking to to hash out you know does this person uh does he validate my world view in everything he says and writes that is not what i'm looking for at all what I'm looking for is what is the big message in here? And he shared at the beginning of the conversation that I had with him what his two main purposes was. You know, it, it, it's this zone of genius and the upper limit challenge. And I I evaluated that entire book and the message of those two things. I evaluated it in my life experience. And also, not just through the lens of my own life experience, but the lens that I have observed of all of my closest friends, relatives, and everybody else that I know in life. And what I have found is everything he wrote about the zone of excellence, the zone of genius, the zone of competence, incompetence, uh, the taking a big leap, and and as you experience more success, you, you're, you have potential issues that come up and your upper limit challenge can... Uh, it it could um, come up in either depression after you've gone away to a conference and have operated in your zone of genius, and it's like, whoa, hold hold your horses there. You can't feel that good, and it brings you back down. I've I've recognized that. I gave it a different language. I called it my post vacation blues, and I figured since it's on Wikipedia and it's described there and it described what I had, that's what I was experiencing. And you know what? I I will tell you right now. I do not believe I've ever suffered from post-vacation blues. Instead, what I had suffered from was an upper limit problem, and I think it's a better language because I can tell you every single time I experienced that, it was it was coming from living life at a level for of, of enjoyment and fulfillment and growth and contribution in other people's lives at a level that was beyond my comfort zone and I came back and getting back into my routine, I had this daydream of what would life be like that. And of course, it's like, hey, dude, you know, don't quit your day job. You know that language? Well, don't quit your daydream. You know, that that's the thing. That, But hey, 
I, that's that's the problem that I was running into. So for me, when I take the overall theme, the the principal theme of this book, again, for me, I'm not concerned about you know what what fundamental faith background is Gay Hendricks. I'm able to separate any fundamental differences I have in religion and faith between myself and Gay Hendricks and what he believes and what I believe. But the question is, is can I take the overall theme and the overall focus of this book, the message, the big leap, and do I believe in the principles that are described with the language that he chose of these zones, these four different zones that we work in, the idea of our zone of genius? In fact, I'm already developing in my own mind the language that I would use to describe some of this stuff, such as the zone of genius is this, it's almost like a dream. It's it's the, a desire that's in our heart that we're born with, and it's, and it's waiting to be manifested in our life. And so I see how I can apply what I believe firmly from my faith background and how the this book, The Big Leap, confirms it. And and it, and basically, all he's done is he's taken empirical data of working with so many people and say, I've noticed this pattern over and over again, and here's a language and framework that I am using to describe it. And as I've described it, I can explain it to people, and by explaining it, I can help other people break through to their next level to become more of who, and, and for me, to become more of who they were created to be. And yeah, anyway, John, that, that's that's my thinking on that. Kathleen, your question was, you know, um, what if somebody says, I don't know what I most love to do. I don't know what work I do that doesn't seem like work because everything I've ever done seems like work. I've never done any work that doesn't seem like work. Gay gave his response, and I'd love to give my response. One of the things that I've learned through this process is I have been living in my zone of genius at points through my journey all along. In fact, even before I left my career in insurance, it's why I desired to leave my career insurance is to pursue my zone of genius, which is encouraging and inspiring people to become more of who they were created to be. And what I realized is that by helping people over these past 10 years launch podcasts, there's been so many people who have that day job they're very successful financially. They feel like they're doing the responsible thing. They're providing for their family or for their own needs or whatever the case may be. They don't have any vision of leaving that because they don't know anything else exists. But no matter how successful they are financially in their day job, here's what happens. They feel like, I want to do something more. I want to, I want to, I want to put a message out into the world. I want to create a podcast about something that I love. And that's how I've been able to attract a lot of people. It's how I got my started, my start in this. I decided to create a podcast about something that I love, something I was passionate about. I was very successful as an insurance agent. But I created a podcast about the TV show Lost, something just to pass the time, something to give me a little bit of fun and enjoyment in life, a hobby, if you will. 
And it was through that hobby that I started to create content with my wife, Stephanie. And we would talk about episodes of TV show of this TV show, Tabula Rossa, starting over with a clean slate. There were faith elements brought in. Like there was the episode called the 23rd Psalm. There were, there were talks about baptism. So there was all of these different things. My, and, and there was all good cowboys have daddy issues. So Stephanie and I got to talk about all of these things that we were passionate about and people were listening. And what, I ha- what happened was I loved loved sharing these things that I was experiencing, things that I've learned, and and turning around and telling people. And I realized that was having a powerful and positive impact on people's lives. People are like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you guys shared that. That is life-changing. I never would have thought that. Can you give us some more insight on this? And people started asking us questions. And and before we knew it, we had so many emails. It was taking up all of my time. We created more podcasts so that we could answer those questions specifically and through throughout the process, eventually one day, a dream, something welled up inside of me, something inside that had lied that had laid dormant most of my adult life. All of a sudden, it, it boiled up to a point where all of a sudden, one day, this thought came into my head: What if I could do this for a living? And if and and it wasn't until after doing this podcast. When I could say, what do I most love doing? Creating content, having conversations, communicating to others what it is that I'm experiencing, what I'm learning, taking that, processing it out loud, and sharing it with the world. That's what I most love to do. What work do you do that doesn't seem like work? Well, creating content doesn't seem like work. Having conversations where people are, uh, where I'm able to encourage somebody doesn't seem like work to me. In my work, what produces the highest ratio of abundance or satisfaction of amount of time spent? For me, I discovered through podcasting that, wow, it's through having conversations with people that that unlock a limiting belief that I have and then all of a sudden then breaking free from it and replacing it with an empowering thought that gives me the motivation to, to do something that moves me more towards who God wants me to be, who he's created me to be. And I realize, hey, that's what I most want to do for other people. And then number four, what's my unique ability? You know, I'm at my best when I'm communicating with others about what I've learned and what I've experienced, how I'm becoming more of who God created me to be, and I'm at my best when I'm helping other people do that. When And so the next uh, fill in the blank, when I'm at my best, the exact thing that I'm doing is communicating with others talking either in a podcast, through mentoring, through teaching at workshops, public speaking, that's what I'm doing. And then the the third fill in the blank for me for question number four, when I'm doing this communication, the thing I love most is I am encouraging and inspiring other people to take action in their life to become more of who they were created to be. That's that's my zone of genius, and it was through a podcast. Now, if I never created a podcast, I was in a somewhat of a, a soul-sucking career, and I didn't even know it was soul-sucking until I realized there was something more, and it was through creating a hobby or exploring, for me, a podcast that gave me the opportunity to, to expose myself. And so I think, Kathleen, more people should be exposing themselves to something outside of their day job where they feel trapped. 
uh, Gay said, you know, spend 10 minutes a day. I say spend 10 minutes a day doing a hobby. You know, whatever. F- go and find something that they enjoy doing. Something that, that they used to do that they stopped doing. Kind of like that dentist he talked about. I love that story where, you know, he used to write poetry and poems and, and stuff like that. But he quit pursuing that after he, you know, started his dental practice. And, and all of a sudden it's like that dream was slowly withering inside of him. Getting covered up. And making that, you know, basically freeing the dream. Um, so, I love that. Uh, Jonathan Gaby asked the question, I feel like I need to make some big steps. Maybe a leap or two. I'm scared of the leap because A, I have limited funds. And B, I don't know if I will succeed. For example, I'd love to start a co-working space. But I don't have the money nor people yet to rent desks or be involved. I feel like because I can't afford it and I don't have the people in line to rent desks to uh, and be involved in it, I shouldn't pursue this idea. So, Jonathan, I was not able, again, to spend the time with uh, additional time with Gay to ask him your question, but here are my thoughts. Number one, I love the idea that it might not succeed. <laughs> Personally, you know, I, I feel like anything that's guaranteed, it, it, there's not a challenge in it. But I think the the question is is do you is is first of all is this within your zone of genius which I asked you on Facebook you know can you fill in those questions that we just covered can you answer those questions and would would opening up a co-working space put you in your zone of genius would it allow you to spend a, more of your time consistently in your zone of genius and if yes then the question is is well, what are you willing to do to make sure that it does succeed? Now, as far as having limited funds and pursuing it, well, obviously, I, I, I don't think that you need to immediately go and buy a building or, or sign a lease on a building and put some desks in it. I think probably what you would want to do is you would want to start, uh, number one, believe it's possible that you could do this. Number two, I would write it down as a goal. My goal is to start my first co-working space by insert date here and let's just say it's it's 18 months from now okay that 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 could be a reasonable time maybe it's 24 months i encourage you not to think five to ten months five to ten years down the road trust me i got stuck in that and it'll just keep you in a rut for longer than you should be in a rut so let's say hey my goal is to have my own co-working space that i own and operate within 18 months and then so you believe it's possible you write it down then you begin telling other people about it. Tell everyone about it um, and have conversations and see who else gets on board and gets excited with you. And and who knows, you might, if, you, if it comes down to funds that you need, somebody might want to be an investor. I don't, I've never been the one that really under, understands this whole idea of, of taking investing money from other people where they own a, a portion of your business, but I know a lot of other people do it. Who knows, maybe down the road, I'll create a business where I take investors, you know, as a separate business, but not my overall main business. Who knows, but maybe you'll talk to people and they'll say, hey, I want to invest in that. I'd love to I, or somebody will say, hey, here's the perfect space. All of a sudden, if you write, if you believe it's possible, you write it down and start telling other people about it. What you do is you just take it one step at a time as the plan becomes available. Don't wait till you have the whole plan and you don't have to go rent everything right away. But just say, hey, I believe this is possible. Here's the goal. I want to have it done by this date. I'm going to start talking to people nonstop about this. And anybody who doesn't want to hear about it, I'm going to go find other people who will replace them for conversation so I can talk to people who do want to hear about it. 
and you keep having those conversations and when the money appears such as enough people that you've talked to that says hey as soon as you do that i want to be your first you know i want to rent your first desk and you've got it and when you get enough commitments and maybe even get those commitments in writing and 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 get your first check from them then you go and you you sign the lease on the buildings that you've been investigating over time so you start doing the research don't you don't have to wait until you have the money and you have the people to rent the desks to before you start investigating what it might look like but i promise you this once you believe it's possible well, first of all, once you determine that this would allow you to spend time in your zone of genius and not distract you from it, then once you believe it's possible that you can do this, once you've written it down as a goal and you give yourself a date by which this is going to happen, and then you begin to work the plan, which means you go out and you start researching this, you start having those conversations, my my guess is that if this really is your zone of genius, genius Jonathan, and you set a goal for 18 months to have one, I wouldn't I would be shocked if in 18 months you didn't own a co-working space. That's my feeling. You know, there were lots of other questions that came in on my Facebook thread. Unfortunately, I did not get those in with my conversation with Gay. I'm going to go ahead and wrap this week's conversation up here. Um, I am in, currently I am recording this at the end of my second week of my final session of podcasting A to Z, but this episode is not going to go live until next Thursday or Friday, which will be the end of my third week of my final session of podcasting A to Z. So I'm still spending a lot of time in my zone of excellence, but the cool thing is, is I'm, I'm committed every day. I'm committed even during podcasting A to Z, I'm committing Every single day that I will spend a minimum of one to three hours every day in my zone of genius, even though I have 15 students in this final session of podcasting A to Z who have unlimited access to ask me any questions they want from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday, but I'm making time because you know what? I can do that. I know (laughs) the Einstein time thing, it's, it's 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 far out there. I don't even know that I fully grasp it, but I do know this. I always have time to do the things that are most important to me. This is something I believed even before I ever heard the phrase Einstein time. I've always believed that you always have enough time to do everything you truly feel is important, that you must do. You will always get your musts. And I have since learned, and this this one is a new one for me, you never have enough time to do the things you really don't want to do. And I'm working towards eliminating all of the things that I don't want to do. And some of you, and I, I'm so glad I got to ask Gay that question. Some of you, you're going to need to gradually, step by step, one step at a time, remove things you don't want to do. You're not going to be able to instantly just shut down a $240,000 stream of income and then go pursue something completely different. Um I am able to do that, but the thing is, is I've been actually working on this transition into the big leap for at least two years now, and I could argue that I actually started this process when I left my career in insurance. It's just that I got sucked into a zone of excellence instead of my zone of genius, and I didn't understand the whole concept and the framework that's been explained here that helps me understand where I went wrong. (laughs) But with that being said, I don't regret the journey to get here because over the process of these past 10 years, over 30,000 people 
in this world have learned how to create a podcast as a result of the materials that I've created or working with me one-on-one or in my podcasting A to Z course. So I am in, in, obviously it's that platform, it's those relationships over the years that has allowed me now to move into this next phase of my business and, and it, it, I have an audience of people who, guess what? They're full-time, they've lived a lifetime as of an employee. They've created a podcast, and now all of a sudden, that, that, little, that little nudge, that little thought, that little dream is popping up, and, and it's causing them to think this, this phrase, and they're just now getting comfortable saying it out loud. I wonder what life would be like if I could do this for a living instead. You know, and of course, I, you know, I have this amazing audience that's allowing me to to go straight into lots of other different streams of income, mentoring, uh, group workshops, live events, and and I have an audience of people who have been poised and have been watching my journey over these years as they've seen me take big leaps that are willing to learn more about it and take their lives to the next level to become more of who they were created to be. I've been working the past 10 years so that I could have the audience so that I could begin the next phase of who I've been created to be. So anyway, I hope that encourages you guys. Real quickly, as I wrap up here, just wanna say this. Number one, my next session of the next level workshop called Building an Online Business Around Your Podcast Efforts. It's coming up November 3rd and 4th. If you have had that thought, I wonder what life would be like if I could do this for a living. If you want to create an online business around your podcasting efforts, check out podcastanswerman.com slash next level workshop. Again, that's podcastanswerman.com slash next level workshop. And then, of course, uh, mark your calendars for 2018. It's September 7th, 8th, and 9th in Franklin, Tennessee. Stephanie and I are hosting an event. It's going to be called Free the dream and the tagline is don't quit your daydream and it's going to be a conference for those who are seeking to to become more of who they were created to be by working in their zone of genius a majority of the time specifically for those who have lived a lifetime of an employee who are now understanding that you know what I don't believe I was ever created to be an employee I I feel led to start my own business and I want to create an online business but I'm and it's specifically also for those who have who are either thinking about taking the big leap to to create their own business or those who have already done it and are struggling and they can't figure out why we're going to help them and help you potentially uncover what limiting beliefs are holding you back how to replace them with empowering thoughts instead and of course also helping you understand the programming and conditioning that you've had since you were a child that will teach you why you are responsible for for placing roadblocks in your own life that are keeping you from financial success. And it has a lot to do with that thermostat that the big league talks about, but uh, there's so much more. Anyway, that's going to be an event in Franklin, Tennessee, September 7th, 8th, and 9th. And I do have a landing page for that yet. I'm not ready to tell you what it is because I'm waiting for the contracts to be signed with the venue. Uh, The dates are confirmed to be locked in, but until I sign the contract, give them the deposit, and I have a countersigned contract back, I'm not collecting any payments from anyone yet. 
so the cost of the conference is $1,000 for the standard ticket. And I will be sharing more probably next week for as, as this episode comes out. So which will be the final week of my podcasting A to Z session on October, what is that, 13th, I think. Friday, October 13th is when I'll tell you guys what the landing page is for that. If you want to be the first person, uh, among the first person, I actually have like 25 people who have already committed to paying $1,000 for the September 2018 event. If you want to be on that list to have your first option to buy a ticket to the free The Dream 2018 conference, then I encourage you to email me, cliff at podcastanswerman.com. Use the subject line conference. All right? With that, my friends, until next time, I encourage you to take everything you do in life to the next level. Podcast Answer Man.